And when the doctor said, you know, you have a choice to make, you know, how do you make a choice like that? Where you are choosing to create something that is so permanent that there's no going back. Do you know that feeling of having to leave something or someone behind because it's just the best decision? Well, John Register, former track and field hurdler, knows a thing or two about this from his own life story to a point that most of us cannot even begin to imagine. Stay tuned. This is Athlete Story, your show if you want to keep a connection to your athletic identity and to other athletes while pursuing your new mission in life after sports. I'm your host, Anja Bolbiak, former World Top 10 skier in moguls and freeride skiing, now way into life after sports. So I invite you to join other former athletes and me here on Athlete Story for resources to help you put your former sports career to work for you in life after sports. Before we dive in, I just want to tease the Successful After Sports Summit that will help you kick off this next decade from home or wherever you choose to tune in from. You see, this is an online conference where I'm bringing on super relevant experts to help you create a life after sports on your terms. Uh, we cover everything from defining what that even means to you to diving into your identity beyond sports to practical ways to position yourself as well as career inspiration. And with, that's whether you want to land your dream job or create your own business. So head on over to athletestory.com forward slash successful after sports to sign up for more information In today's and athlete get story, a special we'll offer for the John Athlete Story podcast. He was an all-American athlete running the 400 meter hurdles at US Olympic trials when he had a bad accident. An accident that forced him to establish a new normal, as he says. Now, on this journey, his new normal, he discovered a parallel world of sports that he didn't even know about. And he was soon all in and eventually qualified for the games with his new normal and won a silver medal in Paralympic long jump. Now, I'll let him fill you in on that story. He's a professional speaker, and today he shares his life lessons with other people. He's done two TEDx talks. He teaches other athletes as well how to extract that value and the lessons from their own stories to inspire others and make an impact. So let's welcome John F. Register. Hi, John. Welcome to the Athlete Story Podcast. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. I know the time zone is different, but it's great to be on with an Olympian. Yeah, likewise, likewise. <laughs> well, I wanted to have you on as an amazing athlete, but also as a like a real champion when it comes to sharing your story and, and giving that inspiration when it comes to sharing the lessons that you've learned in sure. your life or even, I can say, in a life full of hurdles. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, if I want to stay in that image, maybe I can say that the it's like the hurdles in your lane have been just like those couple of inches taller than in the other lanes, maybe. But let's dive into that and let's, let's have you tell the story. Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, our lives can change with one wrong step and our lives can also change with one right step as well. But the wrong step I took in life was I was training for the Olympic Games in the 400 meter hurdles. I had twice been to the Olympic trials, once in the high hurdles and then once in the 400 meter hurdles. 
And then on May 17th, 1994, when I was training for my third Olympic trials and I was um, and you at the United States uh, touted as the eighth fastest hurdler on my way, I was predicted to make the 1996 Olympic team at 529 in the afternoon. I was the eighth fastest hurdler. I was on my way um, to officer candidate school in the United States Army. I was uh, really zipping and run my first sub 50 second hurdle race. And at 5.30 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, I would never run another hurdle in my life. So I went across the hurdle. I snapped my leg in half, dislocated the, uh, the knee, which caused the severing of the artery behind the kneecap. And seven days later, because of poor circulation, uh, my leg, my left leg was amputated right above the knee. And so that was it. I was done. And so how do you make that transition? How, what do what you do next? Uh, and a lot of it has to do, I think, with um, in, in this, our context is what have you put in for the outputs that you're going to get whenever you're going to make a life transition? And are you ready for that transition when it happens? Uh, in my case, I, I fortunately had a lot of things that I were in my life besides track and field. Mm -hmm. And I had to quickly pu pull those things into into the forefront um, and and uh, and begin to look at, at some of those those areas of my life with more scrutiny. Yeah, you make it sound like it's just then this happened, that happened, and then you move on. But I I don't, can't even begin to imagine the the like the whole you see yourself as an athlete, and all of a sudden you're lying there and you you have to consider whether to get your leg empty or stay in a wheelchair yeah you know it's, it's really it's it is devastating i'm not you know i don't mean to go over it so quickly but i can unpack it you know on what was going on in my mind but for the the first part you know we we can make transitions really fast and quick depending upon what's been our life and then later on you go back and you know when people ask me well how did you get over it how did you handle that that painful part of your life and so as I've gone back and re-looked at the entire process, you know, I had high goals and high dreams of serving in our, our military and going on to officer candidate school. And, and I had a whole career path that was laid out before me. I had all my transition was ready for when I made the transition after track and field to, to keep continuing the military career. And then after that, was to work for the military uh, in a civilian capacity for another 20 years and do like almost a double retirement. So my whole pathway was, was, um, was thought about and thought in the forefront. And when you look at the accolades that came behind what, uh, before that day, you know, having run for the University of Arkansas, being a four-time uh, All-American in, in the hurdles and, and uh, the mile relay teams, uh, I, I really was on this fast track and it's seen and modeled other people who were on my team that were already Olympians. So I knew that I, could, I knew what it took to make the team and I was willing to do the work and the sacrificing to make it and put build a support network around me. But on that day when everything turned upside down and the leg is, I'm looking at my leg and I know, you know, I have to make a tough choice probably in the near future. On that day, I, I began going internal. And a lot of my fears started coming out. And I think we all have these fears. Now, the fears are in three parts, I believe. The first is the fear of myself. So I am turning inward and to myself and saying, um, who's going to support me now? Will my wife still see me as 
her husband, will she stay with me? Will my son, who's five and a half years old, will he still value me and see me as his dad? Do I still have a job? Can I support my family in the United States Army? Can I, uh, all these things were in my head. Cause, you know, my Olympic dreams are over. I, I don't know if I can support my family. All those things were moving very quickly in my mind. And I began to go down this downward spiral of despair. Uh, and when the doctor said, you know, you have a choice to make, you know, how do you make a choice like that? Um, where you are choosing to, to create something that is so permanent that there's no going back uh, yeah. from the amputated leg. You're not growing that leg back. And I think that's where we are in, in our lives. You know, when we, we as athletes are making a move and are transitioning, you know, that part, part of our life is done. It, it's, it's gone now. And so what is our new identity that we have in this, what I call the new normal? I think the second fear I had was fear of other people. How are other people going to view me yeah. or keep me in their box? Other people choosing to believe for me what I can or cannot do, which is based on what they believe they could or could not do if they were in my situation. So that's the second fear. And um, how are my teammates going to look at me now? Uh, can I uh, not, can I be strong enough to be separated from them? Or am I going to be pulled back into that world? And I'll just do one more Olympic games. I'll, you know, I'll do one more uh uh, FIFA match. I'm going to do one more. And we keep doing the one more because we're so afraid to make the transition on what the other side actually looks like. And then society has, we have fears of society. What have we listened to? What have, what have, what have we allowed into our mind and our brain to make us think that something is going to uh, hold us back to our initial fears? Why do we believe those fears in the first place? You know, for me, you know, everybody's seen Walt Disney movie. They've seen Captain Hook. Captain Hook's an amputee in the Walt Disney movie, Peter Pan, uh, and he's an amputee and he's a villain of the movie. So now do I associate myself as a villain, as a dark, as a scary character? Because I see Captain Hook as a six-year-old and I'm, I'm terrified of him in this, in this little cartoon movie. Um, and how many times we listen to the, the language of other people that we don't have control over or society that dictates our initial fears. And so that all was going on in my mind uh, during that initial time. And when I share that story, as a, as a keynote speaker and a professional speaker in a breakout session and doing training sessions, I dive deep into what our initial fears actually are before we begin to build a process out of that. Right, right, right. I guess the, the buzzword for that is reframing. There's a lot of reframing that has to come both from the inside and, and from mm. other people. And I know your wife played a role in that when yes. you were still at the hospital. Absolutely. So when I'm in the lowest moment, you know, when I'm contemplating all these things, I'm living out in um, Wichita, Kansas at the time, in the hospital, and I'm wheeled out to an inaccessible playground. And as I'm parked there in the wheelchair, I'm thinking about all these negative thoughts. And she's playing with our son, John Jr., on the swing set. And she sees me struggling because I, I just begin breaking down and start crying uncontrollably because my life is totally upside down. It's 180 degrees in a different direction. And she sees that she comes running over to me and she throws her arms around me uh, and she says, what is going on? And I began to articulate, I began to speak to her all my fears. Mm -hmm. And then she says the words that really stopped my downward spiral. She says, you know what, John, we're going to get through this together. You know, this is just our new normal. This is really just our new normal. And when she said those words, she really 
baselined my entire existence because all these fears I had were really unfounded. They were only my fears, my thoughts of what the future might look like and who had put them in there, who made me think these fears were going to be there. Um, and so as I start, you know, through my sobs and crying, you know, my son, John Jr., he jumps off the swing set. He hits the ground. He comes running over with his little five and a half year old legs and says, hey, dad, you see my big jump? You see my big jump, dad? Dad, you look at my, my jump? And he comes in between myself and Alice, seeing that, you know, I'm struggling. And in that, you know, those 20 uh, meters, he's just validated me as his father. Yeah. And he's created his new normal. And so really they have moved on and before I moved on. And sometimes we need those individuals in our life that are so close to our inner circle that they believe for us what we cannot yet see for ourselves. And that's critical uh, to have that very small inner circle uh, around us to help us with that initial movement in those redefining moments that we have that we will have to go through. And then, well, then from there on, you 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 put on your athletic mindset and you say, now it's rehab, we've got to get at it, you jump in the pool, <laughs> and, <laughs> and new things start to happen, new door, doors start to open. How, how did that all go? Yeah, so I had a physical therapist, you know, I was in with a lot of older um, citizens, and they really didn't know what to do with me because I was this kind of a young kid. I had this amputation, amputated leg. I'm a high-performing athlete. And they saw, you know, even though I lost a lot of weight, they saw the, the determination that I'm going to get back up. I'm going, to, I'm going to beat this. And that was flipping my hat back onto the athletic side because I know athletics is going to get me back in shape. My heart rate, which was had gone from 48 beats a minute, and now it's over, you know, over 100 because of my body's in total shock. I got to get that back down, so I need to get exercise again. Um Oh, the physical therapist told me to start swimming. And so I get in the water and I can't even, I really 25 meters, I can't even make it across the pool. Uh, and, and as we continue this, you know, kind of the story, I get fast in the water, learn how to swim. Uh, and I get so fast in the water that somehow 22 months later, I make the Paralympic swim team. Now, I didn't know anything about Paralympics. I had, there was no reason for me to know about Paralympics. I did not know that when I, when, I, when I first heard about it, I thought it was Special Olympics, you know, for cognitive disabilities. I thought everybody would lumped in one category, but the Paralympics are for those with physical disabilities and visual impairments, and they are the parallel games to the Olympic games. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know any of this. And so who knew that there was a parallel track out there for athletes with disabilities? And so I was, I could take my training that I had done as an Olympic class athlete and it was the exact same training that I could do for as a Paralympic athlete. There was no difference whatsoever. And I had the mindset of that because I knew what it was like to train at the highest level before. And so I just, I just worked on it, the craft. And I didn't think I was going to even make a Paralympic team after I knew about it. My goal was just to make it to the swim trials um, because, you know, 22 months, no one's going to make a team in 22 months. Uh, and, and, so maybe I thought maybe the next quad I, I would I, I could do it if I dedicated myself. Maybe I could make another I could make a team. Um, but I went to the trials, and I get there, and um, I needed I needed to swim like one minute six seconds point zero zero to qualify to make the Olympic standard um, in the in the uh, the Paralympic standard in the hundred meter freestyle. And I went and swam 
So it was just one one hundredth of a second out of making it. But I was ecstatic. I had shaved my time five seconds in a hundred meter freestyle. I was I was like, my this is awesome. Um, and I left before the team was announced. Went back to Virginia where I was living. And the coach from Catholic University, Coach Cal from Catholic University, he winds up calling me and saying, uh, why did you leave before the team was announced? And I said, well, I didn't make it. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Good luck down in Atlanta, Georgia. He says, well, the time you needed in the 50-meter freestyle to make the team was 30.5 seconds. And when you flip turned at the 100-meter freestyle, for the 100-meter freestyle, you were actually at 29.8 on the wall. So you were under the time we needed. So we picked you up for the relay team because half the distance is the only race that you can qualify for and have an official time at the flip turn in the in the 50 uh, in the 100-meter freestyle is at the 50. I didn't know that. Wow. So things that we don't know could actually be detrimental to us. So that was um, that was crazy. I said, you, I, I just almost literally dropped the phone. I said, you mean I'm going to Atlanta as a swimmer? I was I was blown away by that. So it was then I saw athletes running with artificial limbs on the on the track. You know, kind of my first experience with that. Yeah. Um, and then I said, I have to have a leg made for running. And the track and field bug bit me again. And I learned how to run on an artificial limb. And four years later, won the silver medal in Sydney, Australia, in the long jump, becoming at that time one of only two individuals in the world to jump over five and a half meters without a leg or a knee. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's an amazing story. And a nice turn of it. And then, are you still involved in sports? or? Uh, in a various capacity. So I, I, I am involved in sport. I just actually... Uh, left the United States Olympic Committee one year ago in January um, after developing, uh, I believe, a legacy and, and giving back to the community in, in a variety of capacities of where we kind of grow, we're planted, and then give back in that capacity. So plant seeds from how we have grown from our trees. Um, and one of those, one of those uh, give backs was to create the Paralympic military sport program. So this program helped wounded ill and injured service members from first the United States, then in Canada, then in England, uh, and then in, I think we did Italy as two and Ger Germany. Um, so growing those programs uh, so that wounded ill and injured service members could do sports as a tool for their re rehabilitation. And it, it grew beyond my wildest dreams and my capacity <laughs> um, and it grew very quickly. So um, we, I, I went to Loughborough University in England and, and, and talk, talked about how I grew the program in the United States. Uh, Prince Harry heard about it, started Invictus Games from it, uh, from our Warrior Games that we did in the United States. So it was great, you know, get, having a chance to talk with him and talk about how we, you know, how programs can grow. Uh, because my big vision in the, in the, the humanitarian uh, vision of, of peace around the world uh, I believe that sports is uh, kind of the, the, the fastest way to have dialogue and talk. And I do a lot with diplomacy now. But my big vision was to have one country that has fought with another country uh, and vice versa and wounded um, those citizens and those soldiers to actually meet on the battlefield of sport um, and have, um, have friendly competition there to talk about, you know, how we end the next conflict, the next wars. Uh, and the form, the form is actually there and it does exist. And it's called SISM, the World Military Games. Uh, it's out of uh, Belgium. Um, 
in, in Belgium. It's in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, and it was started in 1948, the same year as the Paralympic Games, of, you know, was uh, the, the Paralympic uh, concept. So that I thought that was pretty interesting. And we did get a SISM style competition of track and field done in Germany, I think it was in 2008, 2009, where we had set six or seven countries come in to compete. But I still, what eludes me is the the two countries that have, that have fought wars against each other. So I'm still trying to slowly continue to continue to work on that to see if I can get that done. Wow, that's a nice mission. <laughs> yeah. I know you do work with athletes in helping them share their, their stories so that other people can find inspiration and value in the lessons that they've been through. How do you go about that? Like how, what does it take for an athlete's story to be valuable to others? Mm. Inspirational. That is a great question. Uh, I had to do a lot of, of discovery. And so for the first time, you know, I'm a professional speaker now. And one of my passions is to help athletes um, to tell their journey stories in such a way that it can actually earn them revenue and dollars and they can articulate their value in the marketplace because it is something not just winning a medal um but the whole the entire process of becoming an olympic athlete a paralympic athlete the obstacles that we overcome the challenges that we have that we face the dark days that we all uh go through and then we see you know we don't there's no guarantee of a medal on the other side of it most athletes that go to the olympic or paralympic games they don't win a medal they all, uh, they come back home without anything. They represent their countries very well, but most don't win medals. Only three will win, will win medals. And um, so the stories that we have are generally not the stories about the medals that we won. They're really about the life experiences along the way that actually are tangible to other people, other audiences. And so I help athletes unpack those stories as uh, as insights into where they can where they can go and it's um you know the, usually the first question after an athlete or military service member says yeah i want to tell my story i know i got a great story uh usually i say so what <laughs> it's the first because <laughs> everybody has one everybody has a story and and, and just because you have a, a great story doesn't mean it's going to sell in the marketplace or people want to hear it um people when you tell a story they're interested only to the degree of how well your story actually impacts them in their life. Yeah. We all listen like that. What can I get from this that can help me in my life? And if you just tell a great story and I have to infer everything that you've told me, then, you know, I'm doing a lot of the work. So I teach athletes how to tell a story in such a way that you are giving quality information and you are challenging the, the audience to actually take the information because they might not be an Olympic skier. They might not be a Paralympic athlete. They might not want to, you know, um, be an Olympian. But how can we teach them to win the medals that are in their own lives? And that's how we, we get to it. And that's a great transition piece because a lot of athletes will say, well, how, how much could I really make at this? <laughs> well, there are some athletes that are making uh, seven figures doing this, you know. They're in the millions of dollars doing it uh, on an annual basis. You know, there are others that are making, you know, in the mid six figures doing it. And they're yet still, they're, they're, they're one or two, they're actually eight figure earners. So this could be very, uh, a great transition. And it helps, you know, just in the, the framing of story, it helps with other areas of your life and articulating your value in the marketplace. So that's really what I help athletes get through. And then we, I'm putting together now a whole kind of team 
um, of Paralympic athletes and military service injured personnel. And I have a couple of Olympians as well that have gone through some type of trauma, usually mental uh, trauma, um, to help them share their stories into a market and um, then earn revenue from that for a more conglomerate as we as I train athletes how to tell that story. Yeah, because I, I guess it's kind of therapeutic at the same same time digging into those stories. That's what I felt every time I tried to yes, do it. Yes, yes. To the people who say, well, what's so interesting about me? <laughs> and then they, then they compare themselves maybe to you or someone else that they've heard. What, what would you say? Does everybody have something of value to share, do you think? Absolutely, everyone has something of value to share. And I don't look at it as degrees of value because I hear a lot of athletes say, well, I never want a medal, so therefore I, you know, I can't be a speaker or I, can't, I don't have anything to share. And that could be, that's the farthest thing from the truth because we do have the value and people want to know that experience and that journey. And so what I, what I challenge folks on is there's a way, you know, I'll give one of, one of my uh, kind of teaching moments is we try to think of things in our lives when we're, when we're coming up. I say, you know, tell me a story. Most of us try to go to something that was positive and that was um, that we earned some type of success and want to share that story. Well, stories have dissonance. They have discord. They, they, there's an antagonist and a protagonist. And the farther you can get those two away from each other, the greater the impact the story will actually have. So usually I will say, I want you to write me 10 stories that of something that went wrong in your life. And then from that, what did you learn from that? What was your lesson point that you learned from it? And that really is the beginning of amazing stories. So I rarely, you know, one of my signature stories, yes, it's my new normal going across the hurdle, but I have other stories of how I met my wife. And uh, there's another story of John Jr. walking me down at five years old, six years old to a creek that we used to race to, we used to run to. And now I can't run anymore because it's artificial limb. And he says, well, dad, can we just walk down there? So that story is powerful because he's seeing me in my new capacity and it's and teaching me that it's not about the run. It's about spending the quality time together. And then I can bridge that to the audience and say, how many of you spend quality time with your family members and or the people that are most valuable in your life in work or in play or in, in family? And that's a powerful lesson for all of us. It has nothing to do with a Paralympic silver medal. It begins to connect the community together. And can we find those nuggets of stories as we can Im embed them along the way and then have a dialogue and a conversation? And then I can say to you, you know, well, when was a time in your life that you had a, a challenge and then somebody else showed you that you were paying too much attention to this cell phone and you were not paying attention to the people that were right in front of you, right? So that brings us together and those become anchors and then coupled with your Olympic story, your Paralympic story, it moves the audience because they've seen you at the highest level of sporting competition. Right. When you work with athletes doing this, where do you start? Do you start digging into those moments where something went wrong? Is that the beginning of yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's close to the beginning, but it's, it's really not. I want to get to know the individual mm -hmm. and what their, you know, what's their style? Um, how, do they, how, they, how do they joke around? How, how are they playful? You know, when they have their moments of humor or, you know, what makes them sad? Or what makes them tick? 
exactly? What's their drive behind it? Because then we can find the stories that naturally fit their persona. The challenge is to be authentic. And how can we show up in our most truest, authentic voice? Because it's really hard to, to, to hear our voice. Because in our redefining moments that we're going through, going on back of my chart, is the redefining moment that we have is we're beholden to a lot of other people that want to fit us into their box. And we're trying to figure out how we can stay in that box. There are other people that have kind of gotten out of the box and now they're on, they're so strong that we see where, where they are, but maybe it's too big of a jump for us to get there. But in either case, we have to choose what it is in our life we're going to amputate to actually embrace our new normal mindset um, in this whole capacity of storytelling or in the capacity of who I'm going to show up to now in this, in this redefining moment that, that I have. And that's my own personal work. Yeah. I can't get that from anyone else. Yeah. I can't get it from a book. I can't get it from talking to friends. I mean, they can help me on the way, but I have to make the choice. I have to do the run. I'm at the top of the ski run. I got to push the push past the gate. I got to do the gate to the runs. No one can do that for me. And so to go back to the original question on how I train athletes, it's to hear our voice first before we try to move out into, um, into, our, into something else that we don't even know quite what it is yet. Yeah, definitely. I think that groundwork or whatever you call it is, is essential to actually start to move in the right direction because we can all have this go, go, go mentality just to stay busy and, and yeah, right. but then heading in the, not in the direction that we actually want it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing the paths that we take, right? And, and one, it's, it's not like a, I'm just going to jump over here to this other thing. It's really gradual and, and we can find ourselves off the path a little bit uh, and justifying our existence. And, you know, I think, you know, with, with, with athletes, we, you made a great point in that we don't recover well. And we just jump right back into the next day. I'm going to think about the next, my next run, my next race, whatever it might be. And we don't take the time to process and recover and take that silent mode. And recovery, you know, recovery sometimes is more important than the, the actual training itself. It's important. It's really important. Um, if we can't get back to that state, we can't train to the most optimum performance that we can do the next day in our next training session. Exactly. Well, I think that's a place, a great place to end it with this reminder about the, the recovery and sometimes taking that time out to get centered and, and figure out where we're heading next. Absolutely. I, I loved having you on here, John. I would like for the audience to know, is there a way that they can get to work with you or how do you? Yes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a Zoom call just for people to jump on. I think in my account, I get like 100 people on and we'll just have an opening dialogue and we'll see what people want. I want to make it what the most value for other people are because I might see it one way and somebody else might see it a different way. So getting a consensus of athletes on board to say, yeah, I would like to be a speaker. Here's kind of what I do. Here's how I like to be coached. And then I can draw and make a program for all of us. And then we can put it on Zoom and we can make it a, a living document, right? So that means that we can do a Zoom call, several Zoom calls, together and then we can make it on record so that somebody else that's coming later could actually see it and i think we'll just do the first one for you know no no cost and the free and then then for just the time we'll make it very nominal for people so they can actually get it if those who choose to do it i do believe 
like I do, investing in your performance for the next thing. Because if, you, if we don't invest in it, then we don't take it seriously enough. So we need to, to do some investment. So I do it every year. I always invest in my speaking career and it's elevated me every every single time. So I think that's that's a, a thing. But I think the first one, just kind of get people's feet wet will be good. And uh, maybe we'll just come back on and go through your channel to share with that on when we will do that. I think other countries have the Global Speakers Federation. And so that would be uh, some resources for people to get a hold of right away if they want to uh, to choose this career path. International Speakers Federation, is that what you call Yeah, Global Speakers Federation, GSF. And if you look in your country, you should see, I don't know how many are around, uh, but there's, it's growing all the time. Uh, I know that Europe does have several, and there are you know, some in the African nations as well. South Africa, I know, has one. The, uh, Australia has a pretty robust one. Canada has a robust one. So they're, they're around, and, um, and I think South America has one as well in the United States. So we know that Olympism and Paralympism is global. So we want to make sure that anybody that wants to reach out, this works anywhere. The models for, for compensation are different with, with each country, but the model works. Um, and I've seen people do it from all over the world. Excellent. And if you want to, well, want to see John in action, I can recommend his two TEDx talks. So remind me again, where were they done? Yeah, both were done in Colorado. And it's fun. I'll give you the backstory I want. So one was done in Colorado Springs. It came out of my new normal talk. And I talk about tolerance from the standpoint that tolerance is hierarchical. Uh, and we, uh, we only accept people on our terms and our conditions. So it's a different, it's a different flip on the word tolerance and how we do that. And the first one was done in Broomfield, Colorado. And that's on this new normal. When I first started the new normal story, this more system is so that I have a lot more outcomes from it now that actually relate to the audience. But it's a good kind of understanding uh, if you want to see me at the early part of a development of the new normal story. And I probably should post another one to see where it is now. And you can see the I compare and contrast. And I'll probably just let that out only for the people that you know come on that website. Uh, and we do that Zoom call and I'll, I'll get a, a private link and you can actually see the, the morphing of a story. So I think that would be really great to see. But, so yeah, I would love to do that and we can compare and contrast. I love to go first and show my flubs and mistakes and, every, and everything. Um, it just helps us all learn. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. I'm going to make sure to let everybody know when, when we're doing this. Yeah, I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, John. It's been so much fun having you on. So before we uh, say goodbye here, what is a good place to reach you personally? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, thank you for that. I am all over social media. So Instagram is John F. Register, John F. Register on the IG. And then I have a YouTube channel. I'm relaunching my YouTube channel. We're going to make it really robust on a lot of uh, kind of speaker community tips and things I see out in the community. And then I have a Facebook, uh, which is at JF Register, at JF Register. That's also on Twitter as well, at JF Register. And those are my channels, my social channels. My website is johnregister.com if you want to go out and check that out as well. Uh, so, but I really appreciate the time today. Our, our motto is go forth and inspire your world. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. And look forward to connecting again soon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. You have been listening to Athlete Story Podcast. Tune in again next time. If you have any fellow athletes or people who you think could benefit from listening to this, of course, I'd be very grateful if you'd share this podcast with them. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to Athlete Story. You are awesome. If you are yourself a world-class athlete or former, don't hesitate to come over on athletestory.com and check out more free stuff and resources to help you thrive in and benefit from your sports career. Dare to prepare. Then get yourself out there. Stay in touch.